0: All right. If you're new to our church, uh, we just want to welcome you. So glad you could uh, worship with us today. I have been preaching a series of sermons on finances. And I preached about five messages on it over the last couple of months. My first message was called How to Store Financial Prosperity. where I talked about that everything that we have, uh, we are not owners of it ultimate owners of it were just simply stewards because when it comes down to it God created everything and he caused us to manage the things that belong to him faithfully so it's not about ownership it's about stewardship I talked about when it comes to the goodness of God it's about expectation not entitlement any any point you begin to conclude that you have a right to the grace of God to the good things of God that's when you start to run into trouble Because as Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But may his name be praised. May his name be blessed at all times. When you have a sense of entitlement, it's going to be very difficult for you to do that. Whether it's your car, your house, or a loved one. Uh, When you lose those things and you have a sense of entitlement in your heart, you will get very angry with God. But we have to understand through the cross of Jesus Christ, everything good we enjoy... We enjoy because of his grace, because of the shed blood of Christ. Therefore, we can have an expectation of his goodness. But don't you ever get deceived into selling for entitlement or falling into an entitlement toward those things. That was my first message. My second message was called The Social Mobility of the Saints. It's a good message. You listen to it. It's connected to the metropolitan calling that New Philly has, our commitment to the city, because we believe God loves the city. Amen? And God loves the suburbs, too. Don't get me wrong. God loves the desert. God loves everything. But I'm telling tell you right now, God loves the city. Because the New Jerusalem is going to be a city. When Apostle Paul was sent, he was sent into the cities to plant churches in these influential areas. And as part of that calling, we young people, we need to learn from what our mamas have accomplished, especially our Korean immigrant mamas. Mamas and daddies who went to America, not knowing the language, all right. Learn from what your mama did. They went from five dollars in their pocket to running a chain of five laundromats, dry cleaners, <laughs> nail salons, whatever Koreans are involved with. All right, they they were able to overcome uh, those those uh, hindrances and difficulties and odds. And you guys have a college education. You guys have more going for you than than your parents had, all right? And you can't stay where you are at. You need to learn how to climb the social ladder, have a social mobility upwards at the same time, understanding the gospel always demands that you have a social mobility downwards, to be able to relate to the poorest of the poor, to love them, to never be snobbish about it. Third was a message on Oppa Style. It's a message about covetousness. Guard your heart against covetousness. I think Psy right now has to guard his heart against the fame and the glory and the money and the woman, whatever he's facing right now. Because he is, he is just, he keeps on climbing. I mean, he gets more and more popular. Right now, he is competing with Maroon 5 for the number one position on Billboard's Top 100 chart. He's been number one on iTunes for many weeks now. And so, um, yeah. Anyway, um, he has a hidden message in the song. And it's a message uh, warning uh, about the dangers of materialism, which is a form of covetousness. And uh, I talked about how covetousness, the Bible goes further, and it's calls it idolatry. When you devote yourself to Prada, you devote yourself to Gucci, some people, they devote themselves to materialism more than they do devote themselves to God. And that's why the Bible says covetousness is idolatry. We've got to guard our hearts against that, especially when I'm calling you guys... To rise up, to climb the social ladder, to climb that corporate ladder, to take positions of uh, influence, high places of influence in this city. As I call you guys to do that, you have to take the warning, warn uh, the warning to guard your heart against covetousness. Fourth message was called the rights of the poor. Proverbs 29.7 says the righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. Each and every one of us, we need to understand that the Mosaic law condemns social Darwinism. It's not about survival of the fittest. God has specific laws that limit your rights to your own property. And most of modern Christianity does not understand this. We do away with the Mosaic law through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that's completely not a sound way to understand these scriptures. The economic laws that were given to Israel... The spirit of those economic laws, they still apply to us today. God wants us to uphold the rights of the poor. And when you understand, you apply the spirit of the mosaic economic laws to your life, you will understand that you have a high responsibility to use your finances at whatever income level to uphold the rights of the poor. The poor have rights. And when you don't uphold them, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how, how good of a Christian you are, you don't uphold the rights of the poor and God will begin to indict you as being guilty of sin. And he's done that with his own people throughout all of history. And we have to understand that as God's covenant people, we have a responsibility to uphold the rights of the poor. Amen? Amen. And last week, I talked about fellowship. The Greek word koinonia. Koinonia, sorry. I always forget where the accents go. Koinonia. And how the word fellowship is not just about spending time together and having donuts and coffee. It's not just a sharing of feelings and spiritual matters. It's a sharing of finances and material goods and how the new Testament clearly communicates that. And we need to redeem that word fellowship. If your brother is having a financial difficulty And all you want to do is talk about the sermon when you get together. The Bible calls that foolishness. That's not love. The Bible says, let us love, not with just words, but in actions and in truth. With our actions, with our deeds, let us love. True fellowship with the Father and His Son involves fellowship with God's people in a holistic manner. Amen? I mean... Yeah, so anyway, all right, fellowship. Listen to that message. It's a real good one. So in my last two messages in particular, I talked about the rights of the poor and the ministry of fellowship, of sharing one's goods and materials with those who are struggling, those who are having a hard time. And these two messages, they should have challenged you to begin thinking about your finances differently. Whether you're a college student that gets $700 a month in allowance Or whether you're your corporate executive that's making $7,000 a month in salary. It doesn't matter. Whatever income level you're at, it's time for you to break out of your simple mindset toward finances. I want you to turn to Deuteronomy 15 before I go on with my message. Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 through 11. Let's look at this important passage together. Deuteronomy 15, verses 4 through 11. Chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 4. I'm going to read in the ESV. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Now, does it sound like this is a law that Christ wants to do away with? Okay, let's keep reading here. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest that, you, let, lest that there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cries to the Lord against you. And what does the word of God say? You and you be guilty of sin. This is a command of the Lord to uphold the rights of the poor. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. You have a right attitude. God says he promises he will bless you for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now, did anyone else notice that in verse 4, the Lord commanded, there shall be no poor among you. And then in verse 11, he concludes with, there will always be the poor among you. Anyone else pick that up? Anyone else pick that up? What is God saying? God is saying, I'm giving you this command because I'm giving you the responsibility to eliminate poverty within all of your covenant communities. This side of the cross, we're talking about the church, right? If you're not in covenant, if you're not in commitment to a local church, you need to go find a church where you can do that. If you're in a transition time, I understand, but don't let that transition time turn too long. Transition is supposed to be temporary, not permanent. But you know, some Christians, they go, oh, you know, I like this transition. I think I'm going to just stay here. And they never commit to a local church. It's not only for you to be responsible, it's also for your good when you hit hard times. But anyway, this, this law here is given to us because God's given us the responsibility to eliminate poverty. There shall be no poor among you. Let it be said here at New Philly that there is no poor among the people here at New Philly. No matter whatever socioeconomic circumstances we face. But God promises at, in verse 11... There shall always be poor among you. Now, wouldn't that seem to contradict what God had said earlier? I thought, God, you told us we're supposed to eliminate it. But now you're telling us no matter how hard you try, there's always going to be poor among you. So what, what is it? Well, God is saying, look. There's always going to be recessions. There's always going to be bankruptcies. People are going to go through hard times, whether as a result of me ordaining Wilderness for them or whether out of their foolish financial decisions and corruption, you know, they get judged and and they go through a hard time. There always is going to be people struggling financially among you. In that sense, there always be poor among you. But as long as you're in that covenant community, I command you this day. You are to do everything within your power to eliminate that poverty, to help out those poor that are among you. So do you get it? It's a contradiction, but it's not. God is saying there will always be poor among you. So therefore, this will be always your responsibility. You guys hear what I'm saying? Now today, I'm going to talk about the how. Upholding the rights of the poor does not involve just stepping out and helping those in need. Fellowship, in the holistic sense, is not just about taking a collection and giving it to the most needy people. The gospel demands... That we look at the how of our giving. The how of our charity. And so today we're going to get real honest. We're going to get real honest. Because some of you in here, you feel good about yourself. Because you've been giving. You've been doing charity. You've been going on mission trips. I'm going to just burst your bubble today. It's going to be a rude awakening. But it'll be good. It'll be good. I went, through, I went through very similar emotions back in June. <laughs> Let me give you a quick example. The, the corrupt rich man gives to the poor with the aim of easing his conscience. The politician gives to the poor with the aim of one day being elected into office. The Pharisee gives to the poor with the aim of looking righteous and receiving the praises of men. All three men may give money to the poor, but none of them are doing it in the spirit of the gospel. So for my wealth and poverty class that I took in June, I read a book. I did a book review on a book called Toxic Charity by the author Robert Lupton. Everyone say Robert Lupton. Lupton. Okay, I'm going to mention that name here and there, all right? I'm going to pretty much summarize and read to y'all some of my book review, because it's so good, I just got to just read it the way it is. All right, it's going to summarize some of the important concepts that he lays out in the book. Now, this book serves as a wake-up call for the church to closely examine our involvement in charitable giving and service. The author argues that much of our unexamined charity is not only ineffective, but it's actually harmful. Toxic, if you will. He offers basic operating principles that are going to distinguish wide and prudent charitable efforts from toxic ones. That's what the book is about. Now, recent reports in America show that Americans are getting more and more involved in charitable work, especially in the church. Now, this sounds like good news. This is what Urbana Conference is all about. This is what all the Campus Crusade conferences are all about. You know? Get young people, old people, whoever. Get people to sign up for a short-term mission trip. Get people to move, move money and give money toward Haiti. Give money toward uh, uh, poorer countries. We should celebrate this, right? So Americans have been getting very involved. This is a good thing. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. This is a very good thing. And... Uh, Non-profit service, nonprofit service projects, mission trips have become commonplace recently. Personally, since 1998, I have been involved in six mission trips to Kazakhstan and two to the Far East with Campus Crusade for Christ. Now, that doesn't include, like, the almost 20 trips I've done with New Philly. But let me just talk about the Campus Crusade ones. For each trip, I had to raise about $3,000. Each trip had a team of about 12 students and staff. This means that the total cost of teaching English for three weeks and evangelizing to college students that we met on the field, these eight short-term trips cost $288,000, almost a quarter of a million dollars to send 12 people out on eight trips. Now, as a former full-time staff with Campus Crusade, it was difficult to measure how these trips we're helping the local people that we reached out to. I mean, how do you measure that? So there was there a was song um, by, uh, I forget the name of the musician. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am alive. <clears throat> I'm sorry. My, I'm wrong with my voice today. Usually it sounds beautiful. But that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. Anyway, it's like this song about, um, how you know people give and give and they sow and they sow and but they don't really see the re- they don't reap the fruit until they get to heaven and then you get to heaven and all these people come out and say I was blessed by you I received Christ through you you know and and that's the day then you will get your reward right and it's a very comforting song because many times we go out on these trips and there was no way to measure the results and so we would just listen to that song and say yes Lord One day, I'll get to heaven and there will be thousands of Kazakh people. And they will be singing, thank you for giving to the Lord in Russian or whatever. Um, And we took comfort in these types of things. One good thing that we did get out of these trips was that the lives of students will be changed, matured, and their vision for the world, it opens up. So... We believe that all of that kind of fruit was worth the thousands of dollars it cost to go on these trips. But if I had to be brutally honest, there was a glaring omission in addressing how our trips affected the local people that we reached out to. How it affected the local churches that we work with. Regardless, my experience gives you a good picture of the explosion of charity. That America has seen in recent decades. Even businesses are jumping on the charity compassion bandwagon. Uh, companies like, give me a company. Well, Tom's, Tom's, yeah, the shoe company, right? And there's other companies trying to do that. Anyway, I don't know many examples. But anyway, there's a lot. And they use charity to enhance their corporate identity and to um, ramp up employee loyalty and pride. Right? I mean, how boring is it just to sell shoes, right? That's like Al Bundy from Married with Children, right? It's not the most lucrative profession. But if you're selling shoes and part of those proceeds helps poor kids in poor countries get shoes, then you feel pride about your company. Anyway, that's the effect that some of these companies are going for. Despite all of this increased compassion and charity, the author of Toxic Charity Voices two concerns. Number one, the outcome of our charitable giving and service is grossly unexamined. And number two, recipients are quietly expressing that it is hurting more than helping. So let's get into this. One great example is Africa. The continent, continent of Africa has received One trillion U.S. dollars in benevolent aid over the last five decades. Yet in investigating how effective this aid has been, experts say that Africans are far worse off today than they were 50 years ago. Here's a quote. Overall per capita income is lower than in the 70s. Life expectancy has stagnated. Adult literacy has plummeted below pre-1980 levels. Africa is receiving all of this money and aid, and Africa seems to be getting worse and worse and worse. What is going on here? There are similar effects taking place among the poor in America. Many people criticize the government for failed welfare programs, but the author wants to begin by saying that the church is the most irresponsible charitable giver in the world. Churches fail to see that the help that we provide can actually diminish the dignity of the poor, increase their dependency on our charity. And it, the author Lupton, he said it this way. Giving to those in need what they could be gaining from their own initiative may well be the kindest way to destroy people. So why is it that we fail to properly evaluate our charitable work? The author says that it's because we have been fundamentally self-centered in our evaluations. We have been evaluating our charity based on how good it makes us feel rather than how it benefits those we serve. Each year, religious missions trips spend, on average these days, $5 billion to go on trips. But what may appear to be extravagant, sacrificial giving is really just a large-scale misappropriation of charitable resources. Lupton, he's not completely negative to charitable giving He believes that the immediate outpouring of aid in times of crisis, earthquakes, floods, and whatnot, is very important. It's it's inspiring. It's life-saving. It touches the heart. But he goes on to say that when relief does not transition to development in a timely manner, compassion becomes toxic. Now, let 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 me be real with you, right? When an earthquake hits, when a flood hits... What happens? Our hearts are moved by compassion and mercy. We look at the images. We look at the TV screen and we go, oh, we need to give. We need to do something about this. And so we go on a little trip. We gather a little bit of money, donate it through the American Red Cross, whatever is available. And we give. And then weeks later. We don't even remember what we were involved with. None of us follow through, do we? None of us really care what takes place. We think we throw a little bit of money at them in the beginning after their crisis and, you know, good luck. But what those people really need is for that relief to transition to development. But most Christians simply don't have the patience to stick around. That's because their evaluations are much more self-centered. They feel good. They've eased their conscience. I can now move on. So um, the author talks about how it's not just about having a lot of activity. But what we need is accountability. It's not about lots and lots of activity. We need quality activity through accountability. You have to add about 15 more minutes on my sermon. All right. You got it? All right, do the math. All right, 15 more. All right. So just like the medical profession has the Hippocratic Oath, the author proposes this Oath for Compassionate Service. And the rest of his book explores these principles in the hope that the interactions between the rich and the poor may reflect the gospel and be redemptive rather than being toxic. Now, this author, he clarifies... He's not trying to scrutinize our motivation for getting involved. He's not questioning our intention. He's just scrutinizing the results. The unintended consequences of rightly motivated efforts, it can be actually a lot more negative than we think. He uh, gives this case study of his Presbyterian church. They go on a mission project to a Honduran village. And one of the needs of that village was to get clean water. And so they build a well, they drill a well, and they provide this water supply. And each year that the church returns to see how they're doing, they realize that the villagers are not using the well. The women keep walking two, three miles to go fetch water from a nearby village. And so when he investigates, he realized that the well kept on malfunctioning. The bad part was the villagers refused to repair it themselves because they lacked ownership over it. Such dependency is an example of the types of negative outcomes that often go unreported. He also, I had a good laugh when I saw this uh, example he gave. He talked about a short-term trips that went out to one particular church in Mexico. And in one summer that church got painted six times by six different missions teams. Sadly, this is an accurate picture of what's happening since the religious compassion boom of the recent decades. A USA Today article reported that one study found 1.6 million American church members took uh, parted missions trips abroad in 2005. And the cost of those trips, $2.4 billion. There is so much activity, but so little accountability and evaluation. And I want to really challenge you all today as you listen to this by podcast, as you listen to this here in the sanctuary, think about how our activity needs to be coupled with good accountability. And we need to start giving good objective evaluations about the charitable work that we're doing. Uh, A lot of times the recipients of aid, they're aware of the negative consequences. Why? Because they live there. They live with the will all year long. They know about the negative consequences. They see the attitude uh, of the people that are being helped. They know that most of the work done by short-term trippers can be done better by locals. In less time, less cost, but they don't have the courage to speak up. Why? Because they fear losing the support of the sending churches. So let me just shut up and let them repaint that church that got painted five times already. No one knows. No one has to know. So the cycle continues because it gets unreported. Lutton argues that the giving is not a simple matter if the goal of our giving is to be redemptive. He shares uh, his own personal example of a poor urban family's response to Christmas gifts being given to their children for free. You ever ever remember that growing up? The Christmas gift drive? Everyone bring in your Christmas gift so we can distribute these gifts to poor underprivileged children in the city. Remember that? Well, the author here is saying he, he personally went to the home of a Hispanic family and he saw the looks on the parents' faces as these white Americans brought these beautiful gifts and gave it to their children and the father could not stand to be in the same room. He walked out and the mother had the most fakest smile on her face. What was happening was... Every Christmas, those Christmas gift drives, I mean, of course they were thankful for it. It was destroying the dignity of the parents. Lupton, he quotes this French philosopher and theologian, Jacques Ellur. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Jacques Ellur. He says this. He says, it is important that giving be truly free. It must never degenerate into charity in the pejorative sense. Almsgiving is mammon's perversion of giving. It affirms the superiority, superiority of the giver who thus gains a point on the recipient, binds him, demands gratitude, humiliates him, and reduces him to a lower state than he had before. You know, uh, if you study church history, the early church fathers, they saw almsgiving as very positive. Because in that time, like, like I already discussed, it was an agrarian, It was an agricultural-based economy, right? And so there was a big gap between the wealthy and the poor. And so the church fathers set up this system of almsgiving, which was this symbiotic relationship, this mutual edification relationship. you know? And the, and the logic went like this. The rich give alms to the poor. And the poor are able to keep eating. And the poor, they pray for the rich. Because if you look at the Old Testament, there were these themes between the righteous poor and the wicked rich. And so the belief was that the prayers of the poor were much more powerful than the prayers of the rich. And so there was this mutual edifying relationship. So almsgiving was seen in a very positive light. But this philosopher is proposing that almsgiving is actually quite toxic. Especially as we come into more modern times Where it's not an agricultural based economy Where there is a huge creation of wealth We have the industrial revolution That has completely revolutionized We have Silicon Valley That has completely revolutionized Our ideas of wealth creation I'm going to give you another example Haiti Haiti is another strong example of toxic charity. The country received, get this, $8.3 billion in foreign aid for four decades before the earthquake of 2010. $8.3 billion. Yet the country became 25% poorer during the same time period. Anthropologist Timothy Schwartz argues that the problem is not goodwill or resources, but a lack of accountability and no mechanism to ensure long-term effective development. A really critical point that the author makes in his book is that the Bible emphasizes equally mercy and justice. Everybody say mercy mercy and justice. When mercy and justice are pursued together it leads to holistic involvement. But when they are divorced, they become deformed. Mercy without justice degenerates into dependency and entitlement. Preserving the power of the giver over the recipient. Justice without mercy is cold and impersonal. And it's more concerned with rights than relationships. If we want to see good, long-term, effective development, we've got to, as the church, pursue both mercy and justice in all of our charitable work. Someone say amen. amen. The book also talks about the importance of relationships in, true chari- uh, in good charity. It gives examples of and covers how relationships based on need are rarely healthy. And it tends to be short-lived. In fact, relationships built on need require more and more need to continue. Why? Because the only reason I meet you is because you have a need. So David, oh, he's got, he got, he got into financial trouble. His family is in bankruptcy. He's in a lot of debt. Man, I need to help this guy out. Hey, David, I'll meet up with you, man. I'll meet up with you. Let me give you a little small love offering. Let me give you a gift, right? couple months later, hey, David, how you doing? Are you doing worse? Oh, let me meet up with you, man. Let me, I need to give you another gift. Sorry. (laughs) You know, two months after that, hey, David, how you doing? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great now. Man, I got right back on my feet. I started this business. All this income's flowing in. Oh, okay. Then I guess I don't have to meet you. Because there's no need. Need Need-based relationships are short-lived. In fact, relationships built on need require more and more need to continue. And so thus, it either ends or continues on without ever accomplishing the aim of getting people off of the need. They really like the relationship. They don't want the need to disappear. That's their sole reason for getting together. Relationships based on need are doomed to failure. They are breeding grounds for dependency, entitlement, and resentment. You know, the, the book talks about these examples of how these rich, wealthy Americans, they help out these poor, urban class Americans, and how there's this wonderful relationship. They come, they hug each other. Oh, thank you so much you know, for helping out, helping our family get back on our feet. And the relationship continues and continues. But the poor, they're never empowered and so they begin to depend on this these gifts and after a while what happens is a sense of entitlement begins to rise up in their minds instead of the gifts being a temporary thing to help relieve them into development they see it with a sense of entitlement i can i can bank on that gift each month now so that i can go buy myself a flat screen tv i can bank on that gift So I can get myself some nice clothes. I can bank on that gift for the rest of these next 10 years. Because these people seem like they have all the money in the world. And they don't have any problem giving to us. So they have this sense of entitlement. And what happens is when the giver smells that sense of entitlement. Oh, they start getting sour. They go, what the heck? Where's the Thanksgiving? You know, they, 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 all the hugs of thanks. Oh, thank you so much. They're gone. It's like. Where, where's the gift? Where's my monthly offering? Where's the help that you promised? When the givers smell that out, man, they just get real resentful toward the people that, are, that they're giving toward. And then that relationship, it turns ugly quick. So the author cites all these examples of how good relationships can never be built on need. The author argues that good relationships, the key to good relationships is trust. Everyone say trust. trust. The, cha- the author challenges us to restructure our giving with accountability and mutual edification so we can build trust with those who, who we help, not just meet a mere need. Gotta build trust. So if we are serious about making a significant impact on the lives, those we intend to help, the author challenges the readers that our outreach programs must not be measured by simple activity, but by results. How is it affecting the people we're helping? You know, I felt the heat of conviction when I read this book. For the uh, longest time, I measured the success of short-term missions, trips, I measure that success by the number of people we send. Didn't you see that? Didn't you notice that, right? If one one winter we had 30 people go on missions, and then one summer we have 72, like this past summer, right? Why was I not excited about it as much as I would have been in the past? Because I read the book in June. And so when I'm getting all these signups. I'm thinking, no, this time we're not going to send many teams. We're going to send just two. And we're going to focus on really doing quality work on those two trips. But y'all couldn't stop signing up. I was like, stop signing up. Stop signing up. More people sign up. We ended up sending the most people ever on missions this past summer. <coughs> but in the past, I would have measured a success by all this activity. The number of people that are being sent. But man, now I'm starting to think, man, that's a selfish, such a selfish evaluation. It's, it's, not, it's not a bad evaluation. It's part of the evaluation, mind you. But it's just so one-sided. Our programs and measures of success must be governed by the interests of those we serve and not just primarily our own interests. Money and resources, brothers and sisters, are not the answer but it is thoughtful programs and implementation that encourage development and reinforce self-sufficiency. Let me read that again. Money and resources are not the answer. I know this is a series on finances. But what I'm trying to tell you is for those who are thinking, oh, I want to be a millionaire so I can use all my millions to end poverty and to end human trafficking. ain't Wrong! Money and resources are not the answer. It's just a small part of the answer. The bigger part of the answer is thoughtful programs and implementation that encourage development and reinforce self-sufficiency. Or what, do you, what, do you, what do you see in the sex trafficking industry? You help a woman escape, what happens? She goes right back to prostitution. What, what just happened? I went through all that trouble, risked my life with all them crazy pimps, and you just want to go back to the brothel? What's wrong with you? But you haven't thought it out. There is no helpful way for that girl to make a living, to get a new beginning. That's all she knows. That's the only kind of source of income she has. Her family doesn't want her back. Where is she supposed to go? You didn't provide any solutions or options for her. The book mentions Warren Buffett and Bill Gates as examples of non-Christians that are taking the lead in demonstrating what wise giving looks like. Their personal philosophies on responsible giving are very practical and insightful. They have an emphasis on return on investment. So if Bill Gates gives you a scholarship, he expects something back. He expects, what did you do with that scholarship I gave you? You know, my, my cousin used to work for the, the Gates Foundation. And her sole job, it was what, what a great job, right? Is to find people and give them money. What an amazing job, right? But man, when I saw her doing her work, man, it wasn't easy. That's not easy work to do because people lie. People got ulterior motives. People take the money and they, they never phone, call back. And so... The Gates Foundation has a very systematic way of keeping people accountable to the scholarships they've taken. In my message on the rights of the poor, I mentioned that the Mosaic laws clearly contain gleaning laws, lending laws, property laws that protect the poor from oppression. The spirit of these laws, if you really look at it, it always fosters a sense of a spirit of self-sufficiency. Now, I know that in Christianity, we talk about self-sufficiency. Oh, that's a bad thing. Okay. Now, spiritually, I understand, right? We all want to depend on God. You know, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man abides in me, I in him, he'll bear much fruit. If apart from me, you can do nothing. Of course, we don't want to be self-sufficient spiritually apart from God, right? But in the Bible, when it comes to finances, it's all about self-sufficiency. God doesn't like you depending on the financial resources of another. He wants you to what? To be blessed, to be a blessing. He wants you to lend and not borrow. He says, stop borrowing. You know, some people, they borrow Kangnam lifestyle. Let me live that Kangnam lifestyle. I borrow some money, credit card here. Rack, rack some credit cards there. I got the nice clothing. I got the nice car. And God's like, stop borrowing. It's not what I want for you. This is going to end up in your Destruction. You know, one San Francisco Chronicle uh, documentary article, journalism uh, article on a girl in Pusan who got human trafficked into San Francisco, her story started like this. She went to Prada too much. She went and bought products she couldn't afford, put it on her credit card. And being 19, 20 years old, she needed a way to pay that back before her family found out. And so she took a job pouring drinks for a summer. Ended up in Mexico, in the back of a van, passport taken, taken to L.A., where she started with pouring drinks, actually. It wasn't completely false. But these pimps, they told her, for that flight and for the fake passport to get you across the border from Mexico to America, you owe us now $6,000. If you try to work off that debt, you're not going to pay off $6,000 in the three months that you're here for the summer. But if you do this other work, you can make $3,000 in one month. So what is this other work? Now, like Koreans, the Koreans, the Korean pimps, they're different than the European ones or the uh, Albanian ones. Whoever saw the movie Taken, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. There they have those break, uh, what are they, um, break count? Breaking what? Breaking rooms, right? Where they just break the girl with drugs and rape and all that stuff. Korean, Korean pimps are different. They don't do that stuff. They, they manipulate that, that witchcraft spirit. They control you using debt, shame. Conf, Confucian culture is completely different. Pimping in Asia looks completely different than pimping in um, <laughs> Albania. That's, it's true. This girl didn't get beaten. All, she got beaten later after she got into prostitution. It all started with her just racking up credit card debt. You see, the Mosaic Laws is always fosters a spirit of self-sufficiency. So, and financially, self-sufficiency is not a bad word, is what I'm trying to say. The Mosaic Laws also, it was all about protecting the dignity of the poor. Remember what, what some of the laws said? If the guy has just his like, underwear, you are not to take his underwear. If he's like, oh, you know what, I'll give you my underwear as a deposit. And they're like, no, no, don't, I don't want your underwear. (laughs) God says, do not take his underwear. (laughs) Pretty much like that, you know, like, like essential items like his glasses or or something like that. We were, you were forbidden from taking it as a deposit on on a loan or whatever. Why? Because it was to protect the dignity of the borrower. And the Mosaic Laws, it always promoted <coughs> helping people graciously get back on their feet, get a new beginning for those who are able. I understand there are some people that are severely handicapped. They're not able. But the majority of people in these covenant communities, they are very well able to get back on, new feet, on their feet and start a new beginning. The year of Jubilee was all about that. It was a, it's a clean cancellation. Everybody gets a clean slate. No matter how many stupid mistakes you made, you knew when the year of Jubilee came, it was like across the board, everybody got a new beginning. And it wasn't just on the 40, 50th year, it was every seven years. There was a system that led up to seven times seven, which is the 50th year, 49 plus one, okay, 50th year, Jubilee, okay? All right. <laughs> <clears throat> jubilee granted people a fresh start no matter how many mistakes or calamities they faced. Now, this book, Toxic Charity, I may not agree with everything in the book, but I believe the spirit of Luptum's book is in alignment with the spirit of the Mosaic Law, with the spirit of Jubilee, with the spirit of the gospel. New Philly, we need to honestly examine our outreach and charitable work as we move forward. Our missions trips, our MPWM partnerships. We need to think about these things even for our church plants. You know, after I read this book, I called up Caleb and Mita. And I was like, hey, y'all, y'all spending too much money. All right. I don't want y'all to get. The I, 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 was, I didn't tell them that, actually. I just said, uh, we're going to start to uh, take away some of your money. <laughs> and they were like, why? You tell them got all this money? I was like, hey, hey chill. All right. <laughs> some fresh revelation I got. And that was part of the reason why I kind of, I didn't want them to have a sense of entitlement to the funds coming out of Seoul. I wanted them to get on into self-sufficiency as soon as possible. So this month of October is not only significant for Busan uh, church plant because they got their own building and they're starting their first uh, worship, by the way, in their new building today. Right now, in three minutes, they're going to start their service in their new building today. Not only is it a significant landmark because of the new facility, it's significant because I told them by October, I want you to pay your own rent. I want you to pay for all of the speakers that come down, pay for their train tickets. You pay for everything. I want you to aim for self-sufficiency by October. Now, that's significant because when did they start? In April. In six months, I said, I believe that y'all can get on your feet. They could say, well, well, it took each on two years. Hey, 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 our ceiling is your floor. (laughs) All right? You don't need two years. Six months should be enough. And you know what? And and they're doing it. And they're doing it. We don't want our ministry to the poor to create dependency or entitlement. We want to create self-sufficiency via partnership and mutual edification. We got to clothe the poor, brothers and sisters, not only with physical clothes, but with garments of dignity. That's what the gospel is all about. We want to build up the dignity of those who receive the aid. And this includes our support raising staff. You know, in my message on social mobility, if you missed it, let me reiterate it to you. If you have a regular job and you support one of our support raising staff, $100 a month, $50 a month. Don't you ever think that you're superior than them. But you know what? You can easily slip into that mindset, I'll tell you right now. You don't have social mobility upwards and downwards, you will easily think that. Because you know why? Socially, actually, they're right next to you. But because you're giving them aid, you might start to think they're actually below you. Don't you ever slip into that mindset. (coughs) And don't you ever... Destroy their dignity. God, they're doing that because God has called them to do that. And as a father, as a spiritual father of the house, I did that for seven years. I raised full-time staff support with Campus Crusade for seven years. It wasn't easy. But let me tell you, those years were my, my most blessed years financially. I paid off all my credit card debt. You know, when I, when I came to Korea, let me tell you real quick, when I came to Korea... I announced it at my Presbyterian church in New Jersey. It was a small Presbyterian church. Not very charismatic. I was a worship leader there. Nobody sang when I led. <laughs> <clears throat> and there were only like like 20 people. Man, that was mad. It was like a draft every week. It was real cold in there. Anyway. But, they're, but faithful, faithful wise, I man. they were faithful Christians. And when I announced, I feel like God's calling me to go to Korea. That Sunday, somebody wrote me a check for $8,000. Man, I wish God would just redo the miracles he's done (laughs) in the past. (coughs) Somebody wrote me a check for $8,000. I was like, are you sure? Did you count the zeros? And they said, it's written right there in English, $8,000. Why did I get into that story? Oh yeah, I did it. I did it, and that's why I'm comfortable with having people who have a full-time ministry call to be on that model. Even Pastor Joel here, one of our uh, our new pastors, he moved from New Jersey to Korea because he sensed the call of God on his life to join this movement. And he's on full-time support-raising staff. I want you to build up the dignity of those who receive the aid, whether it's the support-raising staff or whether it's some poor person in an urban area, or whether it's a chosen jok person that you, that you found out needs help, or a Filipino that's trying to come out of a prostitution. We need honest and objective evaluations. Amen? Amen. Not self-centered ones. We have to ask, how does it benefit those we serve, not just how does it make us feel? We need, man, that's the same thing as a druggie, man. A person addicted to drugs, what is the central question that they're concerned with? How is this gonna make me feel? Man, that's, that's terrible, right? Our charitable giving is like a drug addict. No, our question should be how does it affect those we serve? We need accountability, not just activity. We need justice in the form of long term development as well as mercy in the form of short-term relief. I'm not asking for one or the other. I'm asking for both. I'm calling y'all to get involved with both. We got to build relationships with people in the missions field based on trust, not need. And I'm going to close with this. I'm talking about finances for the last six sermons, right? Let me tell you something about Finances. When God, when Jesus taught on the issue of forgiveness, you know what he chose to talk about? He talked about finances. You know why? Because finances gives us the most vivid picture of what takes place when God forgives us of our sin. Think of it this way. The cross of Jesus Christ... Is the greatest debt cancellation ever in history. And for every person who calls himself a Christian here, every person who has called upon the name of Jesus as their Savior and Lord in this place, you have received this incredible debt cancellation of a debt that you can never really repay. (coughs) But... Let me point out something here. The cancellation is not just thrown to us so we can avoid the debt collectors and avoid going to jail. Christ gives it to us so that we can have a new beginning and rise up out of our spiritual poverty and bankruptcy. Let me give you a real big holistic view of the gospel. Because most of us, we stop at debt cancellation. That's not where the gospel ends. Not only does Christ cancel our debts, but he also provides us, the Bible says, with every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Everybody say spiritual blessing. Spiritual blessing. Say every spiritual blessing. Christ's death secures for us a rich inheritance. And when God's people learn to take hold of and steward their inheritance, that's when they begin to live out the abundant life that Christ has promised. This is the gospel. The euangelion. The good news of Jesus Christ. For those who receive the gospel, one of the first things that God does, I noticed... Is to restore your dignity. Let me talk about this theme. You see, this is where you got to make a distinction between ho- Holy Spirit-led Christianity and religious Spirit-led Christianity. And I hope many religious Spirit-led Christians don't listen to this. because They're just going to get angry. But I'm going to point it out because it's part of my message. This is where you got to make a distinction. The rigid, religious Spirit will take the forgiven sinner and beat him down with constant reminders of his wretchedness because the religious spirit convinces Christians that this method, oh Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I'm just such a terrible sinner. I don't belong. I'm not worthy to come into your presence. That this method is an effective way of keeping people in thanksgiving and walking in holiness. That's what the religious spirit convinces Christians of. The real story is the religious spirit can change external behavior, but it can never change the heart. I already mentioned that. I like how one poet said it. Famous poet. Religion might preach grace, but another thing they practice. They tend to ridicule God's people. They did it to John the Baptist. They can't fix their problems, so they just mask it. Not realizing that religion is like spraying perfume on a casket. You guys know that you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The YouTube video? Y'all don't know, man. You gotta check it out. It's, it's a good video. Only the Holy Spirit can transform a person from within. And I've noticed that when he's in charge, he will also beat you down with constant reminders of the death of your sinfulness. Don't get me wrong, he does it. But the difference is, Holy Spirit never does it at the expense of your dignity. Don't, don't get me wrong, man. I still get convicted of my, the deaths of my sinfulness, especially since I got married. Man, God is just constantly showing me how selfish I am. Holy Spirit's like, Holy Spirit's like, that was selfish. But Holy Spirit's not like, you stupid, you're so selfish. No, Holy Spirit, you know, I'm just getting a drink of water, and I'm thinking, man, man, why is my wife always wrong about everything? Why is she always like that? Why is she all so touchy? And then Holy Spirit will say, hey, that was selfish. <laughs> it's okay, because Holy Spirit does the same thing to her. <laughs> holy spirit does remind us of the depths of our sinfulness but he never does it at the expense of our dignity the religious spirit's mantra is sinner 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 the holy spirit points to our new identity as saints says i know you're not feeling it you may not even be experiencing it in your behavior but i need you to believe who you are the blood of christ has changed your very identity You are a saint. Believe it. It's true. And your experiences will line up with that truth. If you stay in that place of faith. The religious spirit tells you you're worthless and you're lucky to be a Christian. How many times have you heard that? We're so lucky. Or we're so fortunate. And that's why, man, I'm a Calvinist, man. I'm sorry, right? Religious spirit tells you you're worthless and you're lucky. Holy Spirit says, no, you're worth actually a whole lot. Just just look at what God has done for you. He's predestined you, he's called you, he's justified you, and he's glorified you in his love. I think somebody upstairs thinks you're pretty important. Some things are loved because they're worthy. Some things are worthy because they're loved. Right? So, famous quote. We are worthy not because of what we've done, or because of our past record, we are worthy because we are objects of God's love. He has predestined that love upon us before the foundation of the world. It's in the Bible, by the way. You can just go read. All right, I'm not making this up. People who have never gotten predestination teaching in here, they're looking at me very angry. It's okay. All right, I'm I'm reformed in my theology in, in a lot of ways, but... The religious spirit says, be suspicious of anything supernatural because you're too dumb to know the difference between the devil and the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, no, you just be discerning because my sheep know my voice. (laughs) Isaiah 61 tells us that when the anointing of the Holy Spirit comes, he gives us beauty for ashes, oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. But it's so sad that many of our churches are full of ashes, mourning, and despair on a typical Sunday service. We need to serve up a notice to the religious spirit that it's no longer welcome in the house of God. When the Holy Spirit comes, he gives us beauty for ashes. Holy Spirit says, I know you feel worthless, but let me clothe you with dignity. Let me clothe you with righteousness. That's what grace is all about. Just receive it. But this is not mine. This is not mine. Just receive it. It's yours. <laughs> it's got your name on it right here. Okay. It's yours. Your name is engraved on that garment of praise. Your name is engraved on that garment of righteousness. It's engraved by the blood of Jesus. It's yours. And the Holy Spirit says, it's all about your dignity. I just want to restore your dignity. Dignity pretty much means uh, a sense of worth and value. You know, one thing that's really cool about Pastor Aaron, if you watch her prophetic ministry, her prophetic ministry is really a ministry of restoring dignity. If you really watch her... Sometimes we call out a stranger and be like, you, sir, come up here. You, ma'am, come up here. You know, and people come up and sometimes they get scared. They're like, what is she going to prophesy? I did some um, bad things yesterday. Oh, no. They, they, sometimes they start crying before she even prophesies. <coughs> right? And never once, never once have I seen her go, you know, you have been terribly sitting against God. And God says, turn your way, turn away from your backslidden ways. She never does that, does she? Or even if she gets a revelation of that, she won't speak it out. Instead, she asks, what would the heart of the father say? Knowing these things, what would he say? You know, sometimes in the prophetic ministry, God doesn't give you that word of knowledge. God doesn't give you prophetic revelation just for you to speak it out. Sometimes he gives it to you and says, what are you going to do with it? And if you watch Pastor Aaron, she's always clothing people with dignity. Sometimes I know some um, old friends from New York. They come, like when Diddy came and stuff. I was like, "This this guy is a wretched sinner." is <laughs> <laughs> confessing to me all this stuff. I was like, "Man, what a what kind of you used to be with Campus Crusade? How could you, Diddy? This is a wicked sinner." But when he would receive prophecy, man, there was none of that. No mention of his wicked sin. It was just. The Lord's created you to be full of life and creativity. And you are a warrior, Diddy. And, and, God, and Satan has been lying to you and telling you that you're, you're just a, a prisoner. And you're just always going to struggle with these things. And God says, no. When God does something, it's permanent. When the devil does something, it's temporary. All this is just temporary. All the devil's works is about to break off your life or something like that, right? And Diddy's all crying like, yeah. <laughs> I feel so different. I'm going to talk about his sin, honey. There's sin in his life. <coughs> but you know what? Over the years, what I've realized, what she does with her prophetic ministry is more powerful than hours of psychiatry. More powerful than professional counseling even. I'm uh, not saying that we don't need professional counseling. But man, sometimes God will do a supernatural work and shift somebody out. Of years of depression. And I believe that in our charitable giving. That's what the gospel is all about. If we put the gospel at the center. Of our missions work. Of our outreach. Of our church planting. Of our charitable giving. We put the gospel at the center. The gospel. Always restores. Dignity. Empowers. Empowers. Takes people out of the mud and mire and places them on firm rock to stand. So, no matter what nonprofit work, charitable work we all get involved with in the future, I want you to have a gospel centered giving and charity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, that in the cross of Jesus Christ, we have received the greatest cancellation of debt ever. And as a recipient of that cancellation of debt, not only do we get to avoid hell, but you also lift us up out of our poverty. You give us every spiritual blessing that we may be clothed with dignity and honor. As you've done for us, God, help us to do for others. When we help them, we not look down on them, but may we seek to put the gospel at the center, clothing them with dignity and honor, helping them to get on their feet, and get a new beginning. Father, I just decree and declare that the old ways of doing charity and missions work in this house have come to an end. You're calling us to a new standard. May this house in Korea shine and affect and change many local churches and houses all over the world. May our application of these teachings inspire a multitude of Christians to renew their minds And we will see, oh God, the oppressed being set free permanently. We will see poverty being eliminated in areas that for years received all kinds of aid but couldn't get out of that poverty. Father, may we see historic moments in these next two decades as your people, receive and apply this teaching to their lives. Thank you, God, for the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We bless your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.